I can't hear anything. Hi, this is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, August 25th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And today's topic is Dr. Heal Thyself. Now, I'm sure everyone's heard this before, that doctors should heal themselves. Or more to the point, if a doctor can't even heal himself, then how can we reasonably expect the doctor to heal anyone else? And as I always say to my brother who likes to give advice, if your advice is so great, why don't you take it? So we're going to take a look today at the inside world of doctors healing doctors. And I'm going to examine the treatment doctors receive when they face illness, when they are impaired or unable to practice medicine for some health reasons. And we're going to see if we can see some similarities with kidnapping, larceny, kickbacks, deception. These are a few terms that come to mind. So we're going to check it out. Now, as always, we've got to quote our sources. So what's our source? Medscape. Yes, Medscape, the uh, physician online information network, totally mainstream, and this is what they say. Now, they say physician health programs more harm than good, question mark. Now, just so people have some uh, background with this, doctors um, are perceived to be, uh, you know, high earners, they have a high-stakes occupation, and so supposedly if a doctor is impaired, you don't want to just, kick them out of the profession, you want to rehabilitate them, get them back to work, and back in the service of humanity. Or that's kind of the basic background. So in the uh, spirit of this, there's something called physician health programs. Now these are state-based plans. That means they vary from state to state and they are regulated on the state model. Okay. And these are for doctors with substance abuse or other mental health problems. Now, 
it is presumed that a mental illness could possibly influence the doctor's judgment and therefore the quality of care he provides for his patients. And so these plans have been created to benefit both the doctor, the profession of medicine, because of course it does take at least 11 years to train up a new doctor. And so these programs are really throughout the United States. Okay, so there are people called detractors, that means people criticize these programs, and they claim that doctors who voluntarily disclose that they have mental health or drug problems can be forced into treatment without recourse. That means they can be, against their will, required to submit to medical intervention. Does that sound familiar? And doctors can face expensive contracts and are frequently sent out of their home state to receive the recommended therapy. And so some doctors allege that during their interactions with the treatment centers, large amounts of money were demanded up front before any assessment was even conducted. And if you think about this, it kind of goes counter to the purpose of an assessment. The purpose of an assessment is to determine what would be needed and, well, how much money would be needed. And so to demand a large uh, upfront amount is a little suspicious. And so critics also assert that there's no real oversight or regulation of these programs. Now, the spirit behind this is that doctors are encouraged to voluntarily come forward to disclose difficulties before it can impact patient care so they can receive um, corrective or beneficial therapy. And of course, that way the doctor is improved, he's restored to full function, so to speak, before any patients uh, might be harmed. Now, there's an analogy here, um, for example, with breast cancer, where the cancer is detected early, as in um, DCIS, is detected before it's even cancer. This is interesting. And so the doctors are now saying, wait, this process is coercive, that means they're being forced to get therapy, controlling, that means they have no input into the decision-making progress, and secretive, which means they're not really told how these decisions are reached or what's going on, and of course with possible conflicts of interest. And so the experience has led vulnerable physicians to contemplate suicide. I would like to say from my experience as a doctor practicing in Syracuse, New York, I've actually been aware of doctors who have committed suicide while under the um, auspices, let's say, of 
uh, the state investigating them and determining um, what should happen next, so to speak. And so two states, North Carolina and Michigan, have already been asked to step in and investigate many of the issues raised by PHP critics. Now, I want to say these are the exact same issues that are faced by patients. And so, uh, for example, you have a patient who has a child, a doctor recommends vaccines. Um, often, the parents don't even know. In other words, it's secretive if, when, and how, and why the doctor makes a referral to Child Protective Services. And so this is a parallel. So this is a process the doctors themselves are being put through and being made to endure and accept as okay and proper and therefore it desensitizes them and makes them more willing to put their patient through a similar process, which often the doctors themselves will perceive as being even less severe, maybe even kind. So let's see what the doctors are saying. So these two states have been asked to step in and investigate these issues. And in North Carolina, the state agreed with these concerns and recommended better oversight by its medical board and society. In Michigan, there's been All-American Spirit litigation in the form of a class action lawsuit which has been launched against the Health Professional Recovery Program, a program similar to um, physician health programs. And uh, Michael Langan, MD, internal medicine specialist in Boston, uh, shares his firsthand experience with a PHP. Um, now, he was at Massachusetts General and Harvard University when he approached the state PHP to help him get off an opioid analgesic, uh, break this into English, uh, narcotic painkiller. Okay. So he began taking the drug to help him sleep after getting shingles. Uh, he didn't know about vitality capsules or castor oil. Shame, shame, shame. Hmm. And he spent several months in a prescribed physician's health uh, program treatment after signing on the dotted line. Now, listen carefully. This will sound familiar to you. On his first day of the assessment center, Dr. Langan said he was asked how he was going to pay the $80,000 in cash. This was before... They even evaluated me, he told Medscape. And uh, Dr. Langan underwent an independent hair and fingernail analysis and turned out to be negative for all substances of abuse. So what we have going on here then 
is darn near extortion. Like, hey, pay this $80,000 or you'll never see your license again. And basically, you know, immunize your kid, risk autism, or we're going to kidnap them. And something along those lines. And this is a totally analogous thing that is happening to patients. And I think it's very unfortunate that uh, these doctors lack the empathy to see that what's being done to them is the same thing that they are, are being asked to do to patients. And the key here also is after signing on the dotted line. And Dr. Langdon, just like patients, when they sign on the dotted line saying, I agree that I'm sick, I agree to accept treatment, and I agree to pay, they don't realize the magnitude of that commitment. In this case, $80,000. In the case of patients, it often is very similar to that amount of money, especially uh, in the case of cancer. And so since this experience, Dr. Langan has been documenting possible cases of negative interaction with these organizations. And he says this leaves physicians, get this, without rights, depersonalized, and dehumanized. Now, I'm not questioning Dr. Langan. What I am saying, though, is this is an identical process that patients are put through. And if, if you can understand this basically hazing, um, hazing, humiliation, abuse, harassment that doctors are asked to endure in order to continue to practice medicine, then you can also understand how this is transferred to their dealings with patients. So what does Dr. Langan say? He's afraid that the role of physician health programs has expanded. well beyond its original scope. So it's now they're becoming monitoring programs that have the power to refer doctors for evaluation and treatment even on the basis of administrative failings such as being behind on chart notes. Now, who cares if a doctor is behind on chart notes? Insurance companies care, drug companies care, regulatory agencies care. Do patients care? No, they just want to get the proper treatment and they want to get better. So if a doctor's uh, discharge dictation isn't done within four days of discharge, hey, the patient's cool with it. As long as they went to the hospital, with a condition, it was treated, and they feel that they got better, that they are happy with the care they received, 
they don't care about the chart notes. In fact, presently, there's a huge dispute that electronic medical records are actually creating a deterioration in the quality of healthcare because the pressure to produce these notes and complete them is so great that there's a whole lot of copy-paste going on and these electronic records are actually not very accurate. Now, why would an insurance company want to know the details of every single chart? No. It's like micromanaging, don't you think? And why would an HMO want the similar level of, as I say, granularity? Well, this allows control to be focused in order to maximize products, profits. For example, in an office visit for a sinus infection, a doctor can write a prescription for $250 worth of antibiotics, nasal sprays, and decongestants, which would create profit for the drug company, or he could write a prescription for a evaluation or x-ray to evaluate the sinuses, which would create profits for the hospital, or he could decide that the patient should just uh, drink some hot tea or whatever, which would create profits for the insurance company. Right. So it turns out that all three of these entities have access at some level to this information, and this allows them to reconfigure their marketing plans. Of course, this has nothing to do with the quality of care or outcome for the patient. Uh, it has nothing to do with um, the doctor's competency as a, as a physician. Now, what he actually did for the patient, sure, that is it's very relevant. But whether he writes it in an electronic format quickly enough and delivers it to these major economic players has no positive impact on the patient outcome. And so what we're seeing here is the ability of these administrative entities, namely um, HMOs, insurance companies, hospitals, and pharmaceutical companies to discipline doctors and essentially levy what amounts to an $80,000 fine or hold their license hostage for events that have nothing to do with patient care. And so Dr. Langan has more to say. He's heard of reports of disruptive physicians, that means independent thinking physicians, being diagnosed with character defects. The monitored physician, he added, is forced to abide by any and all demands of the PHP, no matter how unreasonable, under the coloration of medical utility 
and without any evidentiary standard or right to appeal. Once in, it's a nightmare. Sounds like the HIV diagnosis, doesn't it? And again, if doctors could see how the same thing that's being done to them is exactly what they are doing to their patients, um, it will go a long way towards a lot of relief for both doctors and patients. And so what's happening then is under the pretense, coloration, of medical utilities that makes medical benefit without any evidentiary standard or right to appeal. So this is what doctors are being uh, subjected to. It's estimated that 12%, that's a lot, of physicians will develop a drug or alcohol problem at some point during their careers. Well, gee whiz, I mean, working under this kind of pressure certainly doesn't help any. Okay. So these uh, physician health programs were initially established to help physicians who are grappling with a substance abuse or mental health problem and to provide them with access to confidential treatment while avoiding professional investigation and potential disciplinary action. This is really interesting because uh, when the New York State Medical Board was examining me, I couldn't find any evidence of wrongdoing. So it wasn't a patient that had a bad outcome. And I was aware they had these uh, physician health programs. I was like, well, geez, maybe I could qualify for one of these programs, you know, join the program, get rehabilitated. But, of course, uh, I wasn't abusing any substance. So I was a teetotaler. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't take pills. There is nothing to rehabilitate from. So at the time, it was a little discouraging. I said, gosh, I can't find anything to correct here. And so um, what is happening here is that we have a process which is really becoming much more robust and able to ensnare doctors who have uh, no involvement with substance abuse or even with uh, documentable uh, mental illness. So what are these programs? They're often staffed by volunteer physicians and funded by state medical societies. What's a volunteer physician? I know you listeners are thinking a volunteer physician is somebody who works for free. Not necessarily. Doctors are considered voluntary when they accept payment for something without any um, coercion or force. For example, a doctor who moves to the wilderness and practices medicine even though he gets paid, is considered voluntary. A doctor who goes to the 
wilderness as an obligation to work there in exchange for, say, the government paying for his education is not considered voluntary because if he doesn't do it, there's a penalty. Okay. So the original intent of these programs was to help health professionals recover by protecting the public from potentially unsafe practitioners. And these organizations assess and monitor physicians that are referred to them. In most states, physicians who cooperate with PhD recommendations can continue to work, provided they undergo regular drug testing and other testing to ensure sobriety. So these programs are funded by state, by the state medical societies via uh, government grants and funding. So there's nothing voluntary about them. In other words, the people who are providing these so-called services are being paid. And so there's a serious conflict of interest. Obviously, these people want to recommend more services so that they can increase their employment security. So whether these people are nurses or doctors or other medical professionals, to have the same people working in these programs, receiving payment, and also determining the need for these programs is a definite conflict of interest. And so today, these programs exist in every state except California, Nebraska, and Wisconsin and are represented by an umbrella organization known as the Federalization of State Physician Health. Now, I practiced in Wisconsin, and I can tell you um, the level of regulation in Wisconsin is fairly minimal, which I think is actually a good thing. I don't think that patient care has suffered, and so with medical care being the cause of death in 880,000 Americans, it's kind of difficult to make it much worse. So now, uh, according to the physician statement of the Federation of State Physician Health Programs, the mandate is to support physician health programs in improving the health of medical professionals, thereby contributing to quality patient care. Whoa, wait a minute. So this is such a broad mandate. So now they're not focusing on assisting impaired physicians to become unimpaired. Now they can just improve the health of medical professionals. So you can have a medical professional who's not ill, and this Federation of State Physicians Health programs can nab this doctor, slap him with an $80,000 fine, and say, oh, we're trying to make your health better. And this is a pretty heavy piece of coercion and penalization. 
And this is why I believe that the so-called suspicious death of alternative physicians, um, it's unlikely the status quo or medical industrial complex is responsible for it at all. Not when they have a Federation of State Physician health programs in place that can arbitrarily finger a doctor and inflict an $80,000 penalty. Um, you know, if you have a doctor that is unpopular or as views that the medical industrial complex doesn't approve of, there's so many ways to penalize, influence, neutralize, and divert that doctor. And this, of course, is one of them. And so concerns about this system have been percolating for a number of years. <laughs> In 2012, uh, Wesley Boyd, MD, Cambridge Health Alliance, and Harvard Medical School um, published in Journal of Addiction Medicine, uh, brought many of these issues to the profession's attention. And so in this editorial, um, he said that once a mental health issue has been disclosed, doctors are compelled, that means forced, not voluntary, to enter a PHP or a physician's health program and are instructed to comply with any recommendations or face disciplinary action. And so there is no opportunity to establish whether the diagnosis makes sense or whether the recommendations pertain to the diagnosis even. So for most physicians, participation in this evaluation is a coercive uh, process. And once the PHP recommends monitoring, physicians have little choice but to cooperate with any and all recommendations if they wish to continue practicing medicine. Now, this is something that I noticed uh, in my experience with the State Medical Board was simply that this process going on, which is, which is secretive, which is coercive, which is arbitrary. And if I cooperate with this process, then I have the opportunity to again be subjected to a coercive, secretive, and arbitrary process. So it's not like there's an end to this. So in an interview with Medscape, uh, Dr. Boyd, who was the associate director of the Massachusetts PHP for six years, um, elaborated on what he sees as the lack of due process afforded physicians by such programs. Again, it's the same lack of due process that patients experience when the doctor pronounces an illness. And so once the doctor says, you need vaccines, you need chemotherapy, then the patient does not have due process. If the patient chooses to refuse these interventions, 
for themselves or on behalf of another individual, say a parent or a child, then there's police action and consequences. Without any opportunity to refute the situation. That's what lack of due process is all about. So in general, these programs are given a free pass because it's doctors helping doctors. And again, this is not hardly help. We can call this abuse. And the feeling is that they wouldn't be doing that if they weren't generally nice people concerned about the well-being of others. This is very interesting. So what we have then is we have a system put in place with incentives to literally abuse and terrorize uh, doctors. And what happens is because they're paying doctors to do this, the feeling is, well, it must be okay. And this is actually the reasoning behind um, affirmative action, civil rights. So if you mistreat one group, as long as you mistreat everyone, why that's okay. And as long as a person is being mistreated by a member of the same group, then the mistreatment is okay. This is very damaging for doctors and for the other group. <laughs> and so uh, there's a Linda Breshnahan, not a physician, who's the director of operations for this uh, federation. And she maintains in a written response that options exist for a physician to seek an additional independent evaluation and to appeal to the medical board or workplace. And Dr. Boyd says, not so. And the physicians have been made to feel disempowered and without recourse. And people think that if you raise complaints, you're just belly aching and your complaint can't be legitimate. Again, this is the same thing that patients are subjected to when they say, well, gee, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think I want that therapy. And so doctors are working in a tyrannical, coercive environment, intensely so. And so when following the standard of care just means that a patient gets six months of chemotherapy, whether he wants it or not, the doctor says, well, that's nothing. This patient only knew what I was enduring. And so the doctor is subjected to such pressures such torture, such abuse, they doesn't have empathy for the abuse he's heaping on the patient. And so uh, Dr. Boyd says he's heard of anecdotal reports of a number of doctors whose interactions with the PHP were so difficult they became suicidal. And so became suicidal, like I said, some even commit suicide. And so it's not surprising that if you have your licensing board crawling up your rear end, this is a quote, rates of depression go up and rates of suicide go up. And doctors are documented to have a very high rate of 
suicide, much higher than the regular population. More and more physicians, even those involved in a PHP, in other words, who are profiting from it, feel that regular monitoring of such programs is in order. For example, at divorce says there should be routine audits to ensure that rampant abuses of power are not happening. Now, this is a lot like adding, asking the fox to guard the hen house. Who's setting up these organizations? Who's regulating them? Who's funding them? Not the doctors, no. The uh, federal and state governmental agencies run by, you could say nameless faces, bureaucrats, controlled by, of course, hospitals, drug companies, and insurance companies. So this is a tool to demoralize, to dehumanize the doctors so they can become effective tools of dehumanization of their patients. And so these doctors not looking two, three, or four levels up the food chain here, are saying we want more involvement of the very level of individuals who created the abuse in the first place. And this is really the big, I think, deficiency of medical education is doctors believe in supervision and they believe that um, more supervision, more obedience will solve just about anything. So if a patient's not getting better, by golly, they should be more obedient. They should do more of what didn't work already. So uh, ask whether she believes random audits for state PHPs are warranted um, Brez Nahan said, the Federation supports quality assurance processes utilizing both internal and external approaches and is working to develop guidelines for PHPs to promote accountability, consistency, and excellence. Now, quality assurance processes. We can see what quality assurance processes have brought us in hospitals. Most hospitals have a quality assurance department, by golly. And what it has produced is an incredible amount of carnage. It really has not made hospitals in the United States a safe place. You know, hospitals are a place where 180,000 Medicare subscribers meet their death every year just because they were in the hospital, not because of their illness. It's a place where 107,000 people every year die from properly prescribed medications, prescription practices that were consistent with and met the quality assurance guidelines. And so quality assurance processes we know do not assure improved outcome for the victims for sure. Uh, maybe it improves quality profits, maybe it provides quality revenues or quality administration, but does not necessarily provide uh, quality outcomes for victims. Hmm. And so, of course, 
uh, Bresnahan is well aware of this, and she says, hey, I want quality assurance processes. <laughs> All right. So, then there's Michael Myers, MD, that would be a doctor, from SUNY Downstate Medical Center. I'll have you know, I was admitted to SUNY Downstate Medical Center back in the year of our Lord, 1979, yes. So he's the um, professor of clinical psychiatry and behavioral science. And he's on the advisory board of the New York PHP, and he favors audits. Again, we know what audits get us, not a lot. So he's been in practice 35 years, and the last 20 have been devoted to caring for physicians and their families. And there's no doubt he told Medscape that his state's PHP program has been absolutely life-saving for some doctors. However, he acknowledged there's been a lot of unhappy campers who took issue with the program's process. Same time, though, he can recall only one physician who made a formal complaint. And I have to say, for a physician to make a formal complaint is pretty much the kiss of death for their career. And when you take a look at um, a situation that doctors are in, they have very high debt and high income. It's a devastating um, decision to make. And how are you going to crawl out from under this debt if you don't have the permission to earn um, a better than average income? And so Dr. Myers said the PHP program was initiated on the premise and if we don't govern ourselves, then someone else will do it for us. And this sounds good, but to say if we don't punish and abuse ourselves, then someone else will do it for us, and we can dish out kinder abuse, is kind of like an oxymoron. So many people are wondering, well, what's with the PHP? Again, it's a physician health program designed originally, to assist doctors who are medically impaired by drug dependency so that they can be improved, corrected, relieved of their problem before it impacts patient care. So that's the idea behind physician health programs. Again, this is just a peek into doctors being subjected to a process that's very similar to what patients are being subjected to. And in many cases, even more harsh, because every bit is harsh. And so what they're saying is we're trying to have some autonomy, but if a person's unhappy, then there isn't the same mechanism that would exist, say, at a university. Well, there's a whole protocol that a professor with a grievance can follow. Again, what we're saying here is that doctors are like employees of the state medical board. How about that? So if we're saying that the doctor is to the medical board 
as a university professor is to the university, that makes every doctor, no matter what his employment circumstances are, essentially an employee slash subject of the medical board. And this is a very um, ominous, dangerous uh, analogy, dangerous, of course, for the patient, and this means that your doctor is a government agent. Interesting. And so the lack of a mechanism for due process was at least in a recent Michigan chaos class action lawsuit launched, oh, sorry, was an issue in this class action lawsuit launched by three healthcare professionals, two RNs and one physician assistant. The claim in the statement of complaint to represent the hundreds and potentially thousands of licensed health professionals injured by the arbitrary application of summary suspension procedures. And so summary suspension procedures means that the person is simply suspended, boom, and um, without any um, process. And notice that two registered nurses and one physician assistant bought this lawsuit and no um, doctors were involved, right? Um, This is because doctors go through an indoctrination process that's very long, minimum 11 years. Whereas a physician assistant only goes through, after high school, anywhere from a two-year to four-year indoctrination process, and similar for RNs. And so what we see here is the level of indoctrination, um, the level of mind control uh, is quite apparent. Doctors should be embarrassed that two RNs and a physician assistant would need to stand up for them. Oh, well. And so although the state program was originally designed to simply monitor the treatment of health professionals recommended by providers, has recently unilaterally expanded its role to include making treatment decisions. And so, in other words, they're actually making decisions as to what treatments doctors or health professionals must undergo. So before, they were just monitoring it, just getting reports, checking, making sure that the health professional wasn't being harmful to patients. So now they've taken another step and says, hey, we're going to tell you whether you have to go to an inpatient facility for one month, five months, six months. And so the mandatory requirements of this program, coupled with the threat of suspension, make involvement an involuntary program circumventing due process rights of licensees referred to the program. Now, due process is something that human beings, or in this case, citizens of the United States have, which is simply guaranteed by the Constitution. Now, I'd just like to say, in my case, in New York State, when I suggested that I was um, being denied due process, I was informed by the board and by my doctors and my lawyers that there is no entitlement 
to due process when it's an administrative matter. So when you have committed no crime, then you are not subject to any of the protections of the U.S. Constitution or even of laws. That was that's pretty interesting. <laughs> well, when I found that out, and of course I lost my medical license, I said, well, I can see that I am not in any way qualified for licensure of any type. And I actually gave up my driver's license. Like, you know what? I want no licenses, no special permissions. I'm done. So it means nothing if, again, you deny due process and um, there is no protection under the law. Absolutely none. So these people are suing in the state of uh, Michigan. And so maybe in Michigan there's due process if you haven't committed a crime. Uh, we'll see. And they also claim... Um, that these are clear violations of procedural due process under the 14th Amendment. Again, what I found out in my case was since I had committed no crime, I was entitled to no protection. Like, oh, that is really interesting. So you have to confess to a crime in order to receive protection of the Constitution. Hmm. All right. So initially, the three plaintiffs had their licenses arbitrarily suspended but in each case, the suspension was over, promptly overturned by a judge. Now, this is almost a ridiculous statement because they had their licenses suspended, which means they lost their jobs. Uh, and when the suspension was overturned, they had to reinstate their licenses. You know, the whole process there. So... There is a substantial loss here. And promptly, we don't really know what the word promptly means. And we don't know how much these people had to pay in legal fees and lost income to endure this process. See, nothing of defamation. Now, for some of those who've been watching these events, the lawsuit might just be the catalyst to make changes to the physician health program across uh, the, the country. So uh, here's an example, they say. So according to, uh, this is Dr. Kavanaugh, vice chairman, professor, Department of Psychiatry, Duke University, and he says the PHV experience is a Kafka-esque nightmare. Although he himself has not been referred to a PHP, he said a psychiatrist colleague was anonymously accused of smelling like alcohol. Okay, you could put on the wrong cologne and get that odor. However, he was evaluated and subsequently diagnosed with alcohol abuse. There was nothing to support the diagnosis. The doctor also claimed that the thorough physical examination noted on his record never happened. In the end, so Dr. Kavanaugh, the psychiatrist was in treatment for 13 months. His medical and legal bills topped $90,000. I'll have you know he got off easy. And Dr. Kavanaugh, who obtained power of attorney in his case, tried but failed to communicate with the treatment facility on behalf of his colleague. He also failed to obtain the medical record. 
So you have a facility that has made a diagnosis and they refuse to talk to anybody about how they made the diagnosis, something is wrong. And so this is, again, the, this is kidnapping, persons held against his will, uh, extortion, $90,000 was extracted uh, from him. And this is definitely larceny. And it's very, very shocking uh, that this is this is a process that doctors are being put through. And again, it explains why they are so willing to put their patients through a similar process. Now we have only six minutes left. But what I would hope people would get out of this is that doctors are subjected to a high-pressure, dehumanizing, humiliating experience on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute circumstance. And this is the very same process that they are subjected their patients to. And we can only expect an outcome similar to what we have today. And so if people have questions, they can please click the one on their phone and let me check the chat room here. So if we have um, chat room questions. Okay. Okay, so somebody asked if I was okay because I was coughing. Yes, I'm okay. What are the side effects of a heart bypass procedure long term? the side effects of a heart bypass procedure long-term are actually tremendous. Um, the most um, striking is loss of mental abilities and um, mild brain damage, and it's of a global nature. For example, before heart surgery, a person might be able to identify the difference between a quarter and a nickel or a quarter and a dime. After heart surgery, Generally, people are not able to make this distinction. And because of the length of the surgery, the duration of anesthesia, again, you have a um, loss of brain cells. That, I think, is the biggest uh, side effect of a heart bypass procedure. Of course, the worst uh, problem is it doesn't correct the underlying problem, and then the person uh, needs, of course, to repeat surgery in 10 years. All right. So, Dr. Daniels, is it true that 7 to 8 out of 10 oncologists choose not to elect to get chemotherapy when they get cancer? Some places say it's true, and other places say it's just a statistic and a book with no credibility. Okay. My experience is from talking to cancer specialists. Okay, so when I talk to cancer specialists, they are pretty clear 
that what they are doing to patients is, one, not helpful. And this is doctor-to-doctor conversations, not doctor-to-patient. So these same cancer specialists who talk to me like this are making hundreds of thousands of dollars continuing to provide the standard of care. But what they say is they are very sure that what they are doing is not beneficial. But they continue to do it because it's the standard of care and they are obligated to do it and it's the best available at this. The next thing to ask them, if you press them, would they do this? The answer is, Mm, they probably would not get the full course of chemotherapy. They certainly wouldn't get the full dose of chemotherapy. So I think unanimously they would not subject themselves to the full force of the standard of care. But they might a part of it. And there are many who would uh, just say, no, they would not do that. Okay, next week, we only have one minute left, so we'll have to talk about next week. So next week, Rich Shebin, a former drug rep, speaks out. He's going to share his experiences as a drug rep and why you should go off grid for your health and your life. And so I'm going to interview him about this. And that is it for Dr. Heal Thyself.